0: Welcome to the RSP cast. I'm Matt Waldman with the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. This week, the solo cast for the 2022 tight end class. What do I look for from tight ends? How it differs from the the NFL scouting that we see, at least in uh, media scouting in general, and probably in the NFL, at least from folks I talk to. And uh, we'll look at some of my tiers as well. First, listen, you know, the RSP, Should be available April 1st, just like it has been since 2006, entering its 17th year. It is the most comprehensive look at quarterback, running back, wide receiver, and tight end prospects that you'll find available. And it's both a pre-draft and post-draft all into one. So when you buy it, you get the pre-draft available for download April 1st. You'll get an email when you sign up and pay. Um... And that'll let you know that it is available for download and you create that login and information when you prepay or when you pay at the moment that you decide you want to get it. Um, and then it also comes with a post-draft and I'll alert you via email as well a week after the draft when it is ready. And it kind of ties the loop into how I view these prospects from just a pure standpoint of studying them on film. And then the post-drafts gives you an idea of how I view their talent in in terms of their fit with the team that they begin their career on and then I update you with um, my past three years worth of rankings of those players a couple times throughout the year with a newsletter that comes out multiple times during the year also updating you on players that I'm studying for the 2023 class you get all that available for 2195. Really, not not a bad deal for my little draft pamphlet. Little draft pamphlet, meaning that you're going to get about a thousand pages worth of content that you can click through with you know easy bookmarks on the uh, PDF form that it's available on. Um, you know, very easy to read and be able to find the sections that you want to look at. Overrated, underrated. Takes you through my process. Even has a complete glossary of terms that kind of show you what it is that I'm looking for when I'm studying these players so that you can you could actually do this process yourself if you wanted to take the painstaking time to do this work. Um, You know, it would give you at least a a guide poster, you know, some, you know, a method to be able to, to aspire to to do it. Um, So that's available and of course I do dynasty rankings and projections and for those of you who were 2021 subscribers to that I'll be providing an updated list once free agency is over and once the RSP um, goes out and gets and I get that published um, you know on April 1st. So uh, I'll let everybody know then and let them and I'll get the uh, you know get the final rankings and um, dynasty updates available from the 2021 class sometime in the month of April. Um, and then for those of you who are buying it for 2022, that will be available. The first one will be available in June. All right. So tight ends. Talk about this class, what I look for. Um, you know, first of all, how I scout tight ends is different than what you're going to see probably with a lot of draft media. Who are trying to mimic what the NFL does. And it's not all of what the NFL does. I mean, if you look at Bill Belichick, I would say how he scouts tight ends is probably a little more, is a little closer in terms of how I try and model my scouting because I'm looking for receivers first um, and placing a higher weight on receiving skills than I am on blocking skills. Um, Whereas a lot of the NFL may value the the blocking equally or even a little greater than the receiving. It depends on the offense and what they're looking for. And certainly, offenses are changing enough that you can see that teams oftentimes value having a tight end who can make them a little more multiple, meaning that they can use them in 11 personnel sets or um, 21 personnel sets or even two tight end sets and then split one out to the slot or put them out wide or use them in empty sets where they can do that with a change or a shift in their alignment pre-snap based on what the defense shows them. And that's something that you saw a lot with the New England Patriots back in the Tom Brady era when they had Aaron Hernandez and Rob Gronkowski together or Rob Gronkowski and Martellus Bennett where they could present a very heavy run look but then go to – Uh, a pass look that has tight ends as personnel, but Rob Gronkowski could present a mismatch against um, defensive backs in a similar or different way that might even be greater um, than a wide receiver would to a safety or a cornerback. And so it gives you a, a real advantage when you can find players who are capable of doing that. Certainly Travis Kelsey is a great example. Jason Witten could be that way um, in the past. Um, so, you know, Kyle Pitts obviously is heading in that direction. TJ Hawkinson can block and can match up split wide from the formation and win that way. So when you can find players like that, it's a real boon to your lineup. The difficulty is is that it's rare to find players like that. Um, so if you're going to err in one direction with – the advent of a lot of the spread offenses that we're seeing in the NFL, the NFLs probably has been trending more towards the guys who can y- be used as wingbacks, um, you know, guys who are offset H backs, maybe even used in the backfield a little bit, um, and then split out wide and put in the slot, rather than lining up strictly in, as inline tight ends, because they can get a more of a blocking tight end at a lower cost who can perform those duties well and you can use the wing back or um, these move tight ends in ways where they can help out with a double team on the front side of a play or they can help out on the back side of the play, but they don't have to be that primary guy that a running play is moved through or stay in on pass protection often, and they can be used more as a receiver who gives them a height-weight advantage or reach advantage um, that can be helpful to that offense. Um, and so that's where I think offenses have been and where maybe draft media is saying where they're, it's trending or where the trend is. But you have to wonder, you know, really looking for a trend to me is looking for what people aren't doing right now or where it's going to head and it's not where everyone's going to do it because once everyone starts doing it, it's now you're looking for the next trend. You know, um, you want to be the outlier And you want to be the 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 productive outlier. That's what you're looking for. Is how do you how do you be different so that you have an inherent advantage matchup wise? And if all these offenses, all these defenses in the NFL are now playing too high and forcing offenses to be patient, and as Mike Clay, I think Sigmund Bloom referenced, you know, a dot is dropping. Well, you know what you're going to see is with lighter defenses more defensive backs than you would think. The logic would be that uh, eventually the light's going to come on for some of these offenses that say, you know what? We need to run the ball. We need to run over people. We need to play more patient. We have need to have a more controlled passing attack. Um, and we need to be patient. And can we do that? And part of that is the running game, getting chunks of yards. And if you, you know, part of this, this new trend, this outlier, positive outlier may go in the direction of, of running the ball, which means, again, having the tight end who can block in the ground, you know, in the ground game, and maybe be more of a short-range passing option and be acceptable. So we'll talk about some of the um, ramifications of that that could apply with this draft class in ways as well. But, you know, back to what differs, um, you know, that blocking aspect. Um, Right now, I've been more leaning towards the receivers first. Um, and so if, if all things I'd rather have players who can do both, but you're not going to find the Kelsey's, you know, as I said, on a regular, the Kelsey's or the Kyle Pitts or the, even the Pat Fryer moves on a regular basis, you may get one guy per class who might have a chance at that, you know, and we've got. You know, I would say we have one guy who's probably on the level of a somewhere between a Pitts and a Fryermuth in this class, and that's Trey McBride. We'll talk about him later. And then there's about you know three to five other guys who I think can be you know a lot like a Mark Andrews um, in some respects. You know, give you kind of what Mark Andrews does if the system fit is right, um, and some other players who are you know that you might put into that type of a a mold where they're more receivers than blockers. Um, But they can get the job done as blockers as long as you scheme them intelligently for what they can do. So, you know, from a blocking standpoint, one of the things that I look for, I I look for the same, same things. I just weight them a little less. For instance, I'm not really looking for Guys, You know, it's not a primary thing for me to have guys blocking on the front side of the play. That's great if they can. And that puts them in, in a higher end tier. But what I'm really looking for are just the basics with blocking. Um, and for me, that means that they get their feet set in a balanced position um, for the block that they're going to be operating Um, or executing, excuse me, that their hands are tight when they're supposed to be for that type of block. If they're not tight, then they need to be set in the position that you're looking for. For instance, if you're trying to turn a defender, um, you know, you might have one hand in a wider area to the side that you want to try and push and turn someone. Um, And so, you you know you want to understand a little bit more about what your hand position is going to be. I want to see them be able to deliver a punch and roll through the hips when they deliver a punch because oftentimes you see a lot of tight ends when they block they they jab outward rather than uppercut. Um, and when you jab outward, you're extending forward, you're leaning, you're leaning your pads and your head forward, and now you're overextending into the contact and you may be too far away when you're jabbing like that as well. So you can put your, take yourself off balance and allow a defender to redirect on you. On top of that, the uppercut allows you, forces you to have to be closer in. So you close that gap you uppercut into their chest, and then you can latch on easier. And you wanna be able to latch on to the yoke of the jersey so that you can move and control the man. That's where the holding is legal. Um, You know, the closer to the shoulders you get and the more you're holding on there, the more likely you're gonna get called for a penalty. But if you can can latch on really where the breastplate is, where the sternum is, you know, you're not gonna get called. Um, or it's very unlikely that you're going to get called for that. And it's tacitly legal in that respect. So you want to see them be able to dictate terms because if you can deliver that punch first, latch on while you do so, then you're going to be in a position where you're chest-to-chest with the defender, they're not be able to use they're not going to be able to use their arms as well you're more you're engulfing them and you have control with your hands tight inside so that they can't work their hands inside to break that and you have the center of gravity to be able to move that defender with your legs and when you roll through the hips like that you're delivering a punch with the type of force that can jar the defender long enough for you, just long enough for you to be able to get your your hands in there and and create that le- advantageous leverage and center of gravity, and that's the type of thing that you don't see a lot of prospects do. But that's what you want to see them working towards with stock blocks and certain types of inline blocking. Um, you want to see that they do a good job of being able to move their feet. Um, and staying upright rather than leaning forward with their head, as I talked about. Oftentimes you see guys do that, especially when they're facing bigger defenders um, where they try to overcompensate by delivering by, with a lean into their body or leaving their feet when they punch, as opposed to being technically sound. Um, that's, these are the types of things that only the very best tight end prospects I see as blockers tend to do. Most of them aren't there yet with this level, so what you would like to see on a more basic level is can they can they get chest to chest and stay tight? Can they at least deliver a punch and then lock in you know and keep their and keep their hands tight there um other things that you want to see is you know good form with cut blocking um Especially if they're gonna pass protect on the backside or, or or do a quick type of block on a quick hitting play. You wanna see them work across the frame of the defender, shoot through the defender as they do that. You don't want them just to to jump across like they're you know, like a like a deer running in front of a car, which you wanna see sorry if that's a bad image, but again, you don't want that. You wanna see someone actually shoot across and through the legs you want them to shoot high enough that they're just above the knee at least um, because if you're too low the defender can take their hands and push down on the back of uh, push down on the back of the tight end and step over and you'll see that a lot with failed cut blocks blocks you also um, want to keep your head up so that you can see where you're striking where your your strike point is Um, So your head and eyes need to be up at the target point when you're doing this as well. And the timing has to be good. So these are things I'm looking for with these types of blocks. The other thing was, you know, stock blocking, especially with guys who aren't playing a lot in line. You want to see that they're patient, that they they wait to engage until they are close enough with the defender so that they can, you know, again, um, eliminate the gap between them, get chest to chest. And use the same principles with the punch, the hand position, the feet, you know, not overextending um, and being patient to break down. And that's, that's where the angles come in. You want to see them kind of break down, drop their hips, shuffle their feet, have a nice wide base, um, just like they do in line. But do it from about two yards away from the defender and break down at that point because then the defender has to declare their movement and then you move with them. But if you... If you try to just, you know, make a beeline for the defender, the defender can usually make a move to redirect and make you miss. Um, Where it's better to let the defender, you get close enough to the defender where now you wait and let the defender declare a position with you and then you slide over to where they're heading. Um, Usually you have more success that way when you're setting up. So those are some of the things that I look for with blocking um, in addition to lead blocks you know can they get across the line of scrimmage quick enough to be able to make their blocks can they be pullers and 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 do combo blocks where they help out with one side um, you know with one um, teammate on a double team and then peel off appropriately to the correct defender and to be able to do it in a timely accurate way engage the angle You know, some of that involves being able to make the block, turning your head and seeing where the defender is and knowing where he's going to be trying to go so that you can make your peel at an angle that you can actually reach that defender. Um, So those are some of the things there. Um, Other things that I look for are very similar to receivers in the sense of if you're going to look for a guy who can be a mismatch as a move tight end, then you want to see him have good footwork and hand usage off the line with releases, just like we talked last week with wide receivers. Um, the same thing applies. You want that. You want that footwork where you can have a variety of different types of footwork uses. You want to use the feet first to set up the hands of the um, of the uh, defender, and that's the way it's taught with coaches. I know that I occasionally get some people who are on social media who want to argue that point and say. It's about the hands first, but it isn't. I promise you. You've got in order for in order to get the defender to turn in the wrong direction or take a step or honor the leverage that you're attacking, you got to move your feet. You got to move them in the direction where you're attacking that leverage, and where the defender is already aligned. You want to attack that space, force them to 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 guard that more because if they're shaded to the outside, they're protecting the outside. You want to threaten that outside a little bit more, move them further outside, then use your hands to counter their hands as you move inside. You may not even need to use your hands if you use your feet well enough, you know, to get them moving so far outside that you can then just redirect back to the inside. Um, So, you know, hands and feet are very important, having variety with it, having violence with your hands. Um, so that you're delivering them in a way that it's not just giving a move by rote because you've memorized it, you know, and you're acting it out in a way that's like it's scripted. You have to be able to deliver it as if it's has act, actual practical use. Um, route running. With tight ends, some guys can be as mobile in, in their movements and fluid in their movements as receivers. You know they can drop their weight. They can sit in that chair where they bend at the knees and hips and come to a full stop, and a and a quick stop, on a, um in a short number of steps for hard breaks. And that's te- really what you want to see for a high-end elite guy who can be that that receiver in a big man's body. Not a lot of not a lot of tight ends can always do that. So what I'm also looking for is. You know, if they're going to run routes that break back to the quarterback, which inherently they're going to, especially against zone coverage or even some stop routes against man-to-man, you want at least them to have some suddenness when they turn back to the quarterback. And that, so, you you know, even Tony Gonzalez at the end of his career, I often talk about him having that skill to be sudden in tight quarters. And part of that suddenness in tight quarters is making that quick turn. One of the ways to do that is that you take your sideline arm at the top of your stem and you punch it back as you move. And when you punch it back, that sideline arm back, you're going to add more velocity to your turn, more momentum to your turn, and it's going to be a more sudden move. And you want to have that quick spin because if in the NFL, opposed to college ball, quarterbacks – throw with a lot more anticipation with zone and when they know that you're running a timing route like that they're going to throw that ball when you're at the top of your stem they know that you're not going to have a lot of time with the defender tight to you especially if it's a linebacker over the top and as you're turning that ball is going to be on your hands so you need to be good at getting that sudden turn because that's all the separation you're going to get if you're a top tight end in the underneath range that's all the separation that you need And that's what often can make tight ends play for a long period of time. Well after their athletic, um, you know, their athletic peak has has passed. You know, Tony Gonzalez, Antonio Gates, Jason Witten, Todd Heap. You know, those are examples of guys who after their speed left their games, they still had that suddenness because they had the technique. And they were able to, um, they had the, still had the hand-eye coordination, the anticipation, the technique, to be able to make plays in tight coverage like that. I used to joke that it was old man game, something that Eric um, Stoner would joke about with me too. You know, like the guy who, if you play basketball at a gym and there's a guy my age who's basically whooping the ass of somebody half their age because they understand the post-up game, the passing game, and they know the moves that they make they can be sudden with them they don't have to dunk on you they don't have to be able to run the court they don't have to run all over the the court to try and get open they can take the ball with you glued to them and they can handle themselves in that tight area because they don't need all that separation they have all the technique they need and all the savvy they need to be able to win with leverage with timing um you know, with anticipating what their opponent is going to do. And tight ends do a lot of that. Their lane oftentimes is the underneath coverage, the underneath zones, you know. Um, Another thing that's different with tight ends and with wide receivers with route running is that you oftentimes can leverage their height a little bit more and their frame a little more. So back shoulder plays can be a little, um, have more value than just hard breaks with the weight drop. You know, um, you know, with wide receivers, you need to see them be able to have the weight drop with comebacks and um, curl routes and certain digs. Um, You know, these are types of routes that set up, um, you know, vertical routes in on the perimeter passing game that a lot of tight ends aren't going to run. You can, most tight ends, even the top tight ends are going to run in the middle of the field. They're more like slot receivers in this respect. And maybe you'll use them occasionally on a jerk route where they will have to drop their weight. But if they're not good at that, but they can, they're good at stretching the seam. They're good at running slants. You know, there's a lot of ways that you can use them that you don't necessarily have to use them on that, you know, on a handful of routes that maybe receivers would run. But one of those is the ability to use their height. And part of using that height uh, is also about the jump back. Can they jump back straight up and down and time their jump back so that they don't have to lean back for the ball, but jump towards the ball as it's arriving and get there early and have their back to the defender as opposed to leaning so far back towards the ball because they're late on the jump back that they expose their chest to the defender who's behind them. And so you know, the jump back can be uh, have elevated importance, um, you know, in terms of positioning with the route game. The same thing goes with, um, you know, being able to turn through the catch point so that, you know, with back shoulder plays, that as you make the catch, your back begins to turn so that your back is turning through the catch point so that at, as you make that catch, you can get your back towards the defender and prevent them from being able to reach in and catch the ball. So those are, those are valuable assets to the, to the passing game for a tight end that can make up for whether or not they don't have the elite skill with being able to bend on certain timing routes. Um, you know, Other thing is hand usage at the top of their, their stems. You know, that's another way that you can get some extra um, separation, um, being able to use the arm overs, the wipes, um, to be able the sheds, to be able to work through contact that, that's playing off coverage on you as you make that break. You know, I think it's ele- there's elevated importance to being able to make catches against tight coverage being a tight end because, again, it's, you're more of a trust throw player in these situations in mo- more situations and underneath coverage than a lot of receivers will be, um, you're, especially if you're being um, targeted in the short range of the field. So that has value to me. Um, That's a little bit more elevated um, from that respect is catching after contact, being able to take hard hits at least in the back. You know, if you you are a tight end and you can't take hard hits to the back and make those catches within the first 10 yards of the line of scrimmage on stop routes, um, you better be unbelievable in the deep game and in the perimeter game. And if you're not, most... You know, if you're not and you can't do the do the underneath stuff in the zone, um, you're not going to be relied upon much as a receiver except on maybe play action passes to the flats where you're running wide open and get a little bit of a runway, you know, towards a chasing linebacker downhill, you know, or maybe running some crossing routes on occasion. Um, So, you know, those are things that I'm looking for from a route standpoint, as well as just understanding zones. Knowing that, you know, if you're split in a bunch formation with receivers um, or if you're bunched with receivers or you're split in a trip side set or if you're singled out on one side and you're playing against zone, you understand the triangle of the corner, the safety, and the linebacker and know they, and know how to be on the same page with the quarterback on where you need to settle and what type of route you need to run in those situations so that you and the quarterback can be on a chord and make plays you know so those are some of the things there um you know in terms of how skilled a player is after the catch i mean again that can help a player in in terms of you know what a team's looking for but i'm just looking for guys to transition quickly downhill as just the basic level of skill you know meaning that once they catch the ball facing the quarterback do they get north south immediately they don't waste time trying to make a move or trying to run outside people. They try and push their way downfield or even back their way downfield. Kate Otten did a great job of that from my evaluations of that. He would understand before his break where the defender was, make the catch, and know that if it was a third and four that he could back his way for yardage as opposed to trying to turn, get lose his momentum, and wind up getting stuffed and forcing his team to punt i think i saw him do it against oregon where he made a play like that that impressed me it just showed me the type of football awareness that you're looking for in terms of you know what you see when you run a route in terms of coverage you know what you need to be thinking ahead of when you make the catch and then how to move and use your frame to gain yardage and showing the vision and decision making that's embedded with you know, the down and distance and the game situation and the coverage. And those are all examples of integrate. That's an example of integrated technique where you're integrating all these different facets of skills into, you know, one singular type of action, you know. And that's what separates, you know, a lot of the the higher-end prospects from guys who are going to be drafted on the third day or signed as UDFAs or guys who eventually make it in the NFL and have long careers as contributors and starters and guys who rarely see the field and bounce around. All right. Um, You know, beyond that, um, everything else is kind of individualized towards the player. So let's move on towards, you know, this class as a whole. I, I almost think that this class is a little bit upside down in the sense that if you're looking at it as a pure media draft analyst who doesn't think about fantasy other than like the producers of your show and the executives of your uh of your three-letter and four-letter word company want you to say something about fantasy because it's going to generate more clicks and and the casual fantasy person is going to um, be tuning in a little, you know, during the draft enough that they want to know something, have some little light takeaway, then, you know, yeah, they'll give a little bit of a wink and a nod to the fantasy end of it because they've been asked to for ratings purposes. But if you're really about fantasy, um, then this draft is going to diverge a bit from your from your draft media guys. Because your draft media guys are going to look at the Jeremy Ruckerts, the Daniel Bellingers, the James Mitchells, um, and the... And probably guys like Jalen Widermeyer, if I that, or Wittermeyer and um, Jelani Woods, probably a little bit higher than I do, because they're going to see the size, they're going to see the athletic testing, and they're and they're going to see their ability to block, and decide that and, and use that in the traditional NFL matrix, and go. The fact that these guys can do a little bit of both for you are going to elevate their value. When in the reality for fantasy, you know a guy like Jeremy Ruckert, you know he can block, he can catch, but from what I've seen as an athlete, he's not going to be your next um, Travis Kelsey. He's probably not going to be your next Jason Witten. He might not even be your next Foster Moreau. And Moreau could be something if he were on another team, you know. But it's you know he he's not going to be a top 12 tight end most years, I don't think. He might not even be a top 15 guy. He might end up being like a high-end tight end two for his team. So while that's valuable for an NFL team, for fantasy, it, you know, he's going to get a lower grade from me in terms of how I study these prospects. You know, so I'll note that, you know, he's higher, he's higher rated for certain reasons in, you know, traditional scouting than what the RSPs graded him. But there's a lot of guys in this class that I think fit that description, whereas there are guys that I've elevated above them who may not get drafted until late day two, early day, you know, somewhere between day two and day three who might be considered projects by the NFL um, and wind up being, um, you know, better receivers and maybe one or two will make it as receivers. But those are the guys that I think – it makes more sense for you to invest in in a fantasy draft. Why are you going to draft Jeremy Ruckert? You may draft him on draft capital, and he may get you more production than, say, Curtis Hodges of Arizona State um, because he's going to see the field early. And odds are he might even have a better career than Curtis Hodges if Curtis Hodges never sees the field. But at the same time, did you spend a third or fourth round pick on Jeremy Ruckert? When you could have gotten Curtis Rod- Hodges maybe in the 6th or 7th round or as an undrafted free agent in your fantasy draft and there's the chances of Curtis Hodges becoming a top 10 tight end is probably higher than Jeremy Ruckert in terms of ability, in terms of their um, athletic upside and what what could happen if, they find, if he lands in the right situation. Even though Ruckert's opportunity to just get weekly production on some level even if it's like two catches for 11 yards most as an average you know that may be something that Ruckert has a better chance of he may have a better chance of seeing the field more often um, because of his draft capital but if Curtis Hodges breaks that seal because of his ability his upside is greater and so I would rather steer people towards the late round draft picks at tight end for upside, knowing that they're in most leagues, they're not that valuable unless you're in a 1.5 PPR situation or you wind up with that exceptional elite athlete, um, you know, at the top of the boards who is a, you know, a top five player perennially. So, you know, that's, kind of why I see that it's a little bit upside down in this respect. Because in my first tiers, you know, my first couple of tiers, you've got guys like Trey McBride, Charlie Kolar, Cade Otten, Greg Dulcich. You know, those are guys that, to me, they, they're they going to have that combination of being able to block well enough, either to be the wing back or H-back, or in some cases like McBride and Otten, can be an inside blocker, can be an inline guy in a two tight end set or as a single tight end, but they can also be split out and, and be used um, a little bit more dynamically, at least in McBride's case. McBride to me, if we talked, I made fun of um, Pat Friermuth kind of saying he was Rob Slokowski. And I don't think that was an original by me. I'm sure I got that from seeing somebody say it on Twitter. But Rob Slokowski was somebody that I said could probably wind up being close to Rob Gronkowski's rookie production on the right team. And sure enough, he was only about three or four points away total from Gronkowski's um, rookie season, um, which was good enough to be a top 10 um, fantasy season for a rookie at the position ever. You know, So Pat Fryermuth was pretty darn good. I think Trey McBride is in that – Vein of Rob Gronkowski wannabe types in terms of how media wants them to be. So, you know, if Pat Fryermuth is Rob slowkowski I've jokingly nicknamed Trey McBride um, H. H. Kowski as an H-back Gronkowski because he's built more like an H-back at 6'4, 246. I like his game. Um, I think he's, you know, he's very physical. He knows how to use his pads. He's someone that can block for you but also be able to make some vertical plays because he excels in tight coverage. He's that. He, there's a little boom-bust there with him because he's going to need a quarterback who trusts him. But once that quarterback trusts him and can make those trust throws, Trey McBride will go up and win that ball. I think he has elite ball skills in terms of being able to make the catch away from his frame. And, of course, he can take contact. He's a very rugged player. But the underrated thing about McBride, as a receiver, or not even as a receiver, it's as a runner. He's, you know, I, I'll, I, I've said that he's kind of a bull in a china shop, um action figure set, um, as a runner, dropping his pads, running through people. But he also has uh, some skill with his footwork. He can get his knees high and his feet high enough to avoid some of the trash of defenders shooting low for him or defenders on the ground reaching for him that you don't often see even good running backs do. The best running backs do that well. But the fact that I see a tight end doing it, that's encouraging. And I think it's going to be kind of a hidden asset of his game as a runner after the catch. People say, well, he's not very fast, and he's not unbelievably fluid, but he always seems to make people miss. You know, you could just hear like a... You know, Troy Aikman talking like that or a former linebacker, somebody who knows, you know, has no experience studying you know, ball carriers, doesn't know what they're seeing, but they, they know what they're seeing, but they don't know how to explain it. That's probably the best way that I would put it. McBride has that Alvin Kamara quality of being able to get his feet up to avoid a lot of trash and break more tackles than you would expect from a guy of you know, his mobility. Charlie Kolar, um, you know, he and Kate Otten are interesting. They're kind of diverging guys because where Trey McBride's kind of a, Trey McBride's kind of like the, the convergence of the two styles of play of Kolar and Otten. Um, whereas Kolar's more the finesse player who really understands how to create good leverage as a route runner and then get open and, and he can win in tight coverage very well. Um, and he's a big, you know, he's a, a 6'6", He's a big enough to play in line, but he blocks more like an H-back. Whereas McBride's um, dimensions are more like an H-back, but he can block in line. And I think Kolar's more of that guy you want to stick on the backside of plays, whereas I think McBride can play front side and backside eventually. Um, and Kolar's not going to run through a lot of people. He may push a pile. He may break a tackle occasionally, but he's more of that Mark Andrews type of player who can find the open zone, make the tough catch if it's near him, anywhere near him, and you know, and be able to move the chains for you and occasionally make a big play. Um, he's He does have a little bit of issue with contact coming at his back, like hitting a getting hit he 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 seems to lose his concentration a little bit just enough that he struggles or fights the ball at times and he'll still make catches but has a little more difficulty fielding the ball in some of these situations than what I've seen with other guys who are good at, at catches at the contact point still I like Kolar well enough that I think he can be a starter in this league and be a pretty good one you know meaning that he can give you fantasy production um, in peak years as long as he's surrounded in a he's in a good system with a, a decent quarterback. Um, Kate Otten is more of that traditional in-line guy, even though he's not much. He's you know five pounds lighter than Kolar and he's an inch shorter. He's built more like an in-line tight end. Plays more like an in-line tight end. Very good blocker. One of the things that I love about his game as a blocker is that he seems to understand leverage well enough and how to time it so that he'll let a defender go where the defender thinks he wants to go, and then Colt and then excuse me, Otten will then turn in knows where to turn into that defender and when at what point and be able to push that defender away from where he wants to go, but but by using the defender's momentum to um, the defender's disadvantage. Um Otten is very good with his hands as a blocker in that respect. He's also very good as a receiver. He makes plays after hard contact of all sorts. Um, but I haven't seen him used a lot on the the, the type of routes that McBride or Kolar would get. Otten was really used more often as a play action underneath guy or an outlet or someone used just in the against zones where he wasn't asked to to win a lot of targets in tight coverage as an athlete and so if he can show that and show that he's very good at that he might be the best tight end in this class um but i didn't see instances of that in two years of studying him Um, i saw a lot with mcbride i saw it with charlie colar often enough um with Otten, not quite, but he's probably the most well rounded tight end in this class, at least up there with McBride. Um Dolchich is more of a more like Kolar in the sense that he's more of a receiver than blocker, but he can block and turn some guys, but he's kind of stiff. Kind of stiff in the hips. Um and, and in the knees where you don't see him bend a lot. He can bend just a little bit with some hard breaks, but not deep enough to be really sudden and, and not have to take extra steps with some of the some of the routes that he's running with some of the breaks. But he's someone that can make um, – he really tracks the ball well, um, and he has good speed. He's the probably the fastest of the, the four guys that I've mentioned right now. Um, and so that really gives him some nice upside, quickness and speed he can definitely win up the seam. He's a tough player who can take contact and he may, and he has ability to separate late in a route and he has violent hands with his um release skills. Now the release maneuvers are a little on the predictable side right now. He tends to favor a couple of of them and you want to see a little more variety, but the fact that he performs the ones he performs so well just is as an asset means that as he adds more to his um repertoire he's going to be good at him. um you know looking at the next tier i've got a lot you know i've got i would say maybe you know one two three four yeah five guys in my in my third tier and these are the guys that where it gets a little upside down you know where you would be expecting the ruckerts and the mitchells and the jalen jelani woods and you know they're not there I have those guys in the third tier. You know, where I'm looking more for the guys who can give you that upside. You can get them in the later rounds and get them at at a relative value. Um, Curtis Hodges, I talked a little bit about. He's one of those guys. You know, 6'8, 257, and he has that 42820 shuttle, 7.143 cone drill. I value that way more than. His 4.85 40. I don't really care about the 40. Greg Dolchich has a 4.61 40. That's fine, you know. But Curtis Hodges has a 4.28 20. Dolchich has a 4.37 20. Both are good, but the fact that Curtis Hodges is four inches taller and nearly 15 pounds heavier and is quicker and has better acceleration, and you're really gonna target. You're not targeting him on 60 yard passes. You're targeting him on you know, routes 15 to 25 yards from the line of scrimmage. That's where the acceleration is going to matter. And Hodges has that acceleration. And he's fearless as well at the catch point. I've seen him make some catches in the red zone where he's had to dive towards an oncoming defender and actually take fouls that, you know, take penalties for, you know, dangerous play to win the football and do it like it was nothing. Um, He has good pad level. He can run for power. He's going to push a pile and drag people. Um, He breaks tackles, and he's nimble for his size. I mean, obviously, 7.06 three-cone drill, Dolchich 7.05. Not much difference for a guy two inches taller, 15 pounds heavier, or nearly 15 pounds heavier. Um, So, you know, that's worth understanding. Oh, excuse me. I have Hodges at 7.14 as his three-cone drill. Still, that's still fast enough it's still in the same tier essentially as as Dolchich so yeah Hodges is a guy probably going to go later people will talk about as an intriguing player um, who will be a project he's the type of project I think you want to invest in later in fantasy drafts Cole Turner another interesting guy in that realm because again 6'6 um, he's long lean played at Nevada with Carson Strong very good ball skills. I think the best thing about his game is that he makes plays well away from his frame, high, low, um, one side or the other, often with throws that require him to make the late adjustment. He's very fluid. He's not, you know, he has his four-four-one-twenty shuttle isn't bad. It's not as good as, you know, Dolchich or Hodge, but he's got that short area quickness, 7.06. And that's... And you see it on tape. He moves very well within the radius of his, of it where his frame is. You know, Kolar is a similar way. They adjust fluidly, and Turner can do it quickly, and that helps him on, you know, on, on pivotal throws where they're trust throws and and being thrown open. And Carson Strong threw um, Cole Turner open in pivotal situations more often than he did Romeo Dobbs. You know, and Romeo Dubs gets much more acclaim as the go-to receiver in that offense. I would argue that Cole Turner was as much the go-to receiver, if not more so, in pivotal situations, um, from what I saw on tape. And he's a he's an excellent receiver, takes contact well, good route runner. Um, he can get better at it. I think he can be a little more sudden with certain breaks. Um, but I think he's in the right headed in the right direction. I don't think he has errors that he has to untie, he has more um, opportunities to build on his game. Blocking, he's never going to be, you know, Kay Doughton or um, Trey McBride. I'll put it to you that way as a frontside helper. But double teams, backside work, he can do that. And that's enough, you know, where he can be valuable, especially if you're going to split him a lot outside, use him in the red zone use him in the slot, he can be very helpful in those areas. Um, You know, Jake Ferguson is a guy that I think if I underrate his route running based on just because of what I saw at Wisconsin as opposed to what I felt I could accurately project without, you know, based on what I saw, if he's able to show that he could be a route runner of the full route tree, he might have been a tier one player you know, or maybe at least a high tier two player in this draft. Um, 6'5", 250, one of the better blockers in terms of versatility of what he can do. Um, and then he's a skilled route runner with the underneath routes with the delayed releases like screens and different play action releases. And I really like how he runs with the football. Um, he's not as quick as Turner Dolchich in terms of acceleration. But short area quickness, he's quicker than both of them. Um, 4.81, um, 40 time, not unbelievably fast, but he's not an absolute slow poke either at the tight end position. He's quick enough to get yardage, and he has good vision, and he finishes with the pads, with physicality. He's an all-around good tight end. He's the type of player that – he's the type of guy that I suspect will probably not – Breakthrough as an every year starter. Kind of like Garrett Graham, a former Wisconsin alum, who he did for a short period of time before injury when he was with the Houston Texans um, with during the Matt Schaub era and a leading and like a fantasy productive type of player before his injuries. But you look at his size, you know, he was, he's good enough to function as an H-back, but in a lot of offenses, he might not have been the guy that they wanted because he wasn't Quite big enough, not quite fast enough, not quite, you know, just not quite dynamic in any single way, but really solid. And I think Jake Ferguson is that type of player. So, right fit, it could work out for him for at least a peak period of time, but more likely than not, you're getting a a really good number two tight end who, if injuries strike, they can go to him and actually get passing down production. He's the type of guy in redraft leagues, you'd probably be taking off your waiver wire in the future and using him because he's suddenly now productive. And, you know, then people will be like wanting him for the next year or two or thinking that he's gonna be good and he's broken out and he winds up like Cameron Brait you know, um, overtaken by somebody else, you know, because he's a good supporting cast player but not really the main primary guy you want. Um, Jalen Widermeyer is interesting just because he's very fluid. Even though he ran a 5.0340 and his, you know, overall you look at his tape and that 5.0340 pretty much shows he's slow. He's, he's just slow. A lot of these Texas A&M players that I've seen in terms of receivers or in recent years have been kind of slow. Um, and he, he's one of those guys, but he's very fluid. He has strong hand-eye coordination. He's he has potential as a blocker. reminds me a lot of Deion Sims, the former Michigan State receiver, who was savvy, physical, um, you know, fluid, could catch for you, but may never be a tier one starter. May be more of a contributor depending on the team he's with. Um, it'll be interesting to see how teams rate him. You know, I think he had a top 30 visit by the, from the Cowboys, which means that he may, they may just say, it doesn't matter. We think that this guy tracks the ball well, works well in the, in zones, and he could be our Jason Witten type or our Martellus Bennett or Jermichael Finley type where we're slower, maybe slower on paper, but they function well anyway. So I'm kind of okay with holding out hope for that, you know, Probably the last guy in this tier who will be the first in this tier for many other people will be Isaiah likely at at two thirty eight running a four eight forty and a four five seven twenty shuttle and a seven three 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 cone drill. all those times, especially for that weight, are slow, okay? They're just slow they're They're slower than Ferguson, you know, much slower. Um, in terms of the three cone drill, um, than all the guys I mentioned in this tier, and so when you look at that, you you have to wonder: is you know, is he ever going to be quick enough? Now the argument could be that if NFL teams look at his small school background at Coastal Carolina and say, you know what, the funding hasn't, the funding isn't anywhere near what you're going to see at an Ohio State or a Texas or a Georgia or Alabama or LSU. So the quality of conditioning and development that they receive at a Coastal Carolina isn't going to be on par across the board of what you'll get at some of these larger schools. So we bet that if we can get them into an NFL program that we're going to be able to – add more quick twitch muscle and explosion to his frame and game. And he could be 250, 255, be quicker, faster, um, you know, and have more acceleration, more overall explosion to his game. And if that's the case, then they're going to draft him inside the fourth round, maybe as a third or fourth round pick. If that happens, then I'm all in on likely as a guy that you're going to want to take because he's good at catching the ball. He's a fluid athlete, even if he's not an explosive one. Um, I can see the weight drop with his with his route, so he can get quicker with all of those. I think he's someone that, that you can build on the foundation if they determine that the foundation is worthy to build on, you know, in terms of physically. The game, his, uh, another way of putting it, is that the fundamentals of his game can be built on It's whether the athletic ability is there for it to be built on. And if the NFL drafts them early enough, that's probably a vote of confidence that they think it can happen. If they draft them late in the fourth round or in the fifth round and later, they probably are more suspect about that. So that's a good kind of barometer to understand how draft capital may impact what they see in the player. Um, You know, my next tier is filled with guys, you know, I'll... I'll probably just stop with this tier here, Um, but there are a few guys like Grant Calcaterra, who was with Oklahoma and then finished at SMU after he retired from a concussion history, and um, you know joined the fire department and then decided to come back. and He's a very good receiver in terms of being able to catch the ball above the rim. Um, He's a good zone receiver. Um, I didn't particularly, you know, he's fast enough certainly in terms of. 40 speed, he's probably quick enough too um, from what I've seen on film. He catch. There's some There's some issues with catching the ball that are on the numbers that he has to fix a little bit. The diversity of route running could probably be a little bit better. Blocking really isn't all there. Um, but I think he can be a nice role player for a team. Um, but does that translate to fantasy production? A little boom bust. Not to mention the concussion history. Um, James Mitchell, Um, this is a guy, this is someone who really, when you look at his play, he's built like a move tight end who you would draft in the first two to three rounds. He might, I bet he even has the athletic ability that would be on par with that after he recovers from the ACL tear that he had in October. But tracking the ball, he has some issues there. Um, There's some, you know, and it's not with catches that will get him it's not the catches that can give him a career where every year he gains between 300 and 500 yards you know that's those catches he can make it's the catches that separate the three to 500 yards per year guys from the 800 to 1300 yard yard year guys you know the the elite guys it's the ability to jump back for the ball time it well have your hands where they need to be to meet the ball. Mitchell seems to have an issue with that. The further the ball is, um, the further the route takes him from the line of scrimmage and the further the throw travels, the more issues he seems to have with some of these tracking um, opportunities when he has to try and win the ball um, against tight coverage. Blocking can be better too. So the the framework is there. Like the game, look, he looks like the guy that when he gets off the bus should be a good player. Um, but it's not completely there. I don't want to use the old Joel Bushbaum phrase. Looks like Tarzan plays like Jane. Cause I don't think it's like that necessarily, but I do think that he's more of a guy that, that he looks better on the surface for the, the basic things that he can do, but the elevated skills just aren't quite there. Um, you know, Daniel Bellinger, he's a riser in this draft class, but most of what he can do is block. He drops way more targets than than he should for a guy who's a riser, whether they're contested or not. But when they're contested, he can't take a hit and catch the ball, not hard hits in the back. And that's something that you need tight ends to be able to do who are not dynamic down the field, and he's not dynamic down the field from what I've seen. I mean, he's most likely a guy that you can use on play action, get him out in the flat, have him work stop routes, you know, underneath that type of thing, and then have him block. Um, Sean Dykes is interesting to me out of Memphis. You may not know much about him. He's six feet 220, so he's not really a tight end. I think he's more like Larry Centers, which means he's probably not going to be in the league for very long other than on special teams at best, and he might be playing in an alternate league, but he can catch, he can block for, you know, assignments that are befit for his size, which is more like a running back, very good pass protector. Um, so he could have a possible career as a utility back for a team that, you know, if he plays well enough, he could be a real find as that kind of niche utility back that we don't see very often. And on, on the right team, he could be a high volume receiver in that respect, but I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, it's like, I see the window of possibility, but it, you know it it's unlikely that it's going to become a reality the same is true probably of garrett prince um, who is of uab former receiver 64241 he's 47740 7253 cone drill 32 and a half inch vertical shows on the field like at uab in his conference he's quick enough he's fast enough he can win down the field against zone coverage and then sustained separation on some of the vertical routes, but he's—it's not going to work in the NFL to the same degree. A guy who has those athletic metrics is Jelani Woods, um, 46140, 4220 shuttle, thirty-seven and a half vertically, but six seven two fifty-nine. You think, oh my goodness, this guy is—you know—I had somebody ask me. On Twitter, is this guy like in the Kyle Pitts tier of like because of his athletic ability? Does he have that kind of potential? The answer is no. The simple answer is no. The more nuanced answer is that when you watch him on tape, the only time I've seen him in two years, really three years of tape, translate some of that athletic ability shown in drills or in, on, at the at the pro day onto the field is as a runner in the open field, when he's built up to full speed and there's a safety trying to cut off his path and cut his legs, and he can make a quick stick to a stop and dip back inside in very impressive fashion at full speed at his size. But I've only seen him do that, I think, twice in his career. The rest of the time, he doesn't look that fast. Um, He's got build-up speed. So, but he's his acceleration just does not match the acceleration i saw in in the in, in, you know in the pro day he just does not play fast so unless he's just thinking he's like a slow processor of information and somehow can get faster at it because hey maybe oklahoma state doesn't maybe they just try and get athletes and hope the athlete does its best kind of like the You know, Mike Wall's talking about he didn't know anything about routes at Mississippi State, or excuse me, at Ole Miss, until he was being taught things about wide receiver play at the Senior Bowl and learned more about receiver play at the Senior Bowl than he did in his full career at Ole Miss. If Jelani Woods is in that kind of scenario, and I could certainly see how Oklahoma State could possibly be that type of scenario. Um, I'm not saying it is, but, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility. Then, you know, Woods Woods could have an awakening in terms of putting everything together, but I think he's going to get overdrafted based on his his combine. I'm um, excuse me, his pro day, because the skills aren't quite there. He's good enough with the athleticism he shows on field and the skills that he has to be a, a develop into maybe a second or third tight end on a team, and give you moments where you go. Oh, that was a nice play, but any you know, but I don't think he's a guy that's ever going to pose a matchup problem on the level that that his athleticism may um, you know advertise. And the same you know, and L- Ruckert I already talked about him a good bit, and just in the sense that he can catch, he's good in zone coverage, he's got re- reliable hands, he can block. He's not a great blocker if you ask me, you know, but he's good enough at just about everything to maybe become a low-end starter temporarily for some teams, but probably have a career as a number 2 tight end, you know. So, those are the guys that I found most interesting in this class um in at least the first 3 to 4 tiers and uh you know if you want to learn more, you can Find out more about these and other positions on my podcast at Matt Waldman's RSP Scout Talk or the RSP Cast. You can also find them at the Rookie Scouting Portfolio, available at mattwaldman.com. And for those of you, just a note, who donated to John Hodgins, um, GoFundMe, you know I I just want to thank you on behalf of John. He's sincerely appreciative. We are close to halfway to his goal. So if you haven't um, donated yet, You know, I would suggest checking out his story. I'll just mention it as briefly as I can right here and just say, listen, you know, he's a this is a 75 year old man um, who is, you know, worked at, at a hospital in California for, you know, decades helping other people. He had his retirement nest egg set up. He rented a house, he and his wife and they ended up basically victims of a home invasion and, and assault with a deadly weapon and the, the, the assailants in jail for the next 20 plus years. So that's not going to be an issue, but what was an issue is the fallout of this crime because the house that they were renting, they were kicked out of basically due to the damage. The, the, the tenant just decided to sell the house. So they they had to, they had to leave, they they didn't have, you know, finding work at 75 that can help out when you're in declining health and your wife's in declining health and you have a daughter who is also dealing with some uh, mental health issues that you want to also be able to help. It's a lot. And, uh, you know, John tried to take it on himself like I think most people would try to do. Who, you know, and being the parent that he was and being... You know, and being someone who's been, you know, an active part of his community and and holding a stable job for as many years as he did, it, it just got worse and worse as he got ill. And he's suffering from kidney disease. And, you know, the stress of all this, I'm sure, has been taking a toll on him for the past few years. And so he reached out um, with a GoFundMe and, you know, so that he can kind of they can find a stable place to live instead of living out of cars and living out of hotels and then living out of, you know, dilapidated buildings and trailers and that's kind of what they're doing right now and, you know, his attitude has been overwhelmingly positive but, you know, obviously if you can imagine your father being on a fixed income or your grandfather being on a fixed income and having something happen so unexpected and being... Um, so life changing that it, you know, it's, it's kind of an act of God type of thing. You know, sometimes we have, you know, we have act of God moments that, that the odds are against happening. And when they do, it can completely turn your life upside down. So if you can, uh, you know, if you can find it within your heart to, uh, to donate even a little bit, or at least share his story. Um, you know, that you see on my site, um, for this podcast, you know, I would appreciate it. Um, you know, he would appreciate it and, and it feels good to be able to give when you can, even if it's a little bit, you know, cause a little, you know, a little bit, you know, even if it's five or $10 that if that's a lot to you, it's still, it's still going to be a, even more to him, you know, um, and and his family and you know it's the type of thing that it's these moments where you get a chance to show your humanity a little bit by helping people um you know where you can and and certainly he's done that through his life and I'm sure it was very hard for him to ask for help I know it was um so if you can do the same if you can help out I would appreciate it um You know, again, the GoFundMe will be on this uh, uh, on my you know website page for this podcast, and you can find that and find the link to it and donate there. Thanks again, and uh, I should have this RSP posted on Friday, April first, as usual.